When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Screen Talk IndieWire's weekly movie podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, joined again uh, by Marcus Jones, our awards guru, who uh, last week was embarking on his first Telluride and now gets to tell us how it went. And Marcus, before we get into the movies, I have to tell you, I am so disappointed that you did not listen to my advice about not drinking on that first day of the festival. But I also got to tell you, I gave that advice to a lot of newbies this year. None of them did. So you're in fine company. Yeah, well, I am changed in multiple ways from going to Telluride, but also I feel much stronger knowing that I once again went to the mountains and left without elevation sickness. So. Yeah, you actually did just fine. You, did just <laughs> fine. you were able to party and not lose your head, which is not the way it went for me the first time. So very impressive. <laughs> so t- t- tell us about it, because I think your perspective on Telluride is, is fascinating in that, you know, for me, it's like it's very familiar. You show up, you get it situated you know you're gonna see a couple of movies get bumps and you're gonna go to that opening picnic and see people around it just kind of happens in a very sort of uh expected way in that sense but this was all new to you so what is your kind of big takeaway from what telluride is is like and, and the value that it's had yeah i mean you hear about how approachable everyone is and how nice everyone is even the talent that's in the films but when you get there at your first time you are still nervous of like uh i don't think that this person wants to talk to me like they they're taking photos i can't go over but the funny thing about the brunch we had conversations about writing about it and I was a little like, wait, I don't know, like what kind of information I can get. And then just immediately, I think one of the highlights was uh, I got to meet Robert Downey Jr. And he is so completely disarming that we ended up talking about his film a little bit, but also talking about like the real, real being a shit show right now. And <laughs> I was getting a lot of compliments on my jacket uh, that I wore there Uh even from Leah Sedu. So that was kind of (laughs) interesting experience, but yeah, I mean, uh, it is pretty easy to get around. It is such a beautiful city. Um, I did get to see, uh, a good amount of films, even though I did still do a lot of work there. And so I am completely a fan. It was as good, if not better, as everyone said it was. Yeah. And what what I love about the the description you gave of the picnic is it really is sort of like you're suddenly just like plunked down at the center of the fall movie universe. Like here's Robert Downey Jr. promoting his, the documentary about his dad. There's Leia Seydoux with One Fine Morning, which could be the French Oscar selection. And they're all just kind of like chilling there. So you're you're in the thick of it, like physically. And then it gives you this sense of clarity about like where we're heading. Although it's, it's interesting because it's like that starting point then is informed by the way the weekend goes, like certain films screen in different ways. When we could talk in a bit about Senior, the documentary that uh, Downey was promoting, but having him there and talking with journalists and other people off the record, basically, like we sat down at that picnic table, right? And yeah. then he kind of like worked his, his uh, Iron Man magic. It was like, 
a perfect way to kind of like get people hyped for this thing. And then obviously the movie had to be good. It's like, that's one step. And then the second step. So like the movie did turn out to be good. So that, that, you know, plan worked out really well. Let's talk about some of the other films that we saw this weekend that we anticipated would have an impact because I think it's worth noting that even if, for example, we knew that Kate Blanchett was going to get some kind of boost from Telluride for Tar, she's getting the tribute and all that kind of stuff. I think it's really fascinating now that we've seen the movie to look at how that played out. So you went to the Kate Blanchett tribute, which sounds like it was quite an evening with a three hour movie followed by a tribute in a movie yeah. that has a tribute in it in a way. So tell us a little bit about your perception coming out of that and, uh, you know, how what what it did for Kate Blanchett in terms of her profile with respect to this film. Yeah, well, I mean, to go with what we're talking about, I think Kate Blanchett is the one star that was there that even all the other talent was in awe of. I, uh, in the audience was like Anne Hathaway, and you could tell she was really enjoying the conversation and Jeremy Strong uh, that Kate Blanchett was having because uh, her tribute interview matched like how epic of a film Tar is. Because ultimately, even if you dislike Tar, what Kate does is such an achievement. Yeah. Um, And the way that this is a fully realized character to the point where people were asking, wait, Lydia Tar is not a real person. Yeah, a lot of people thought she was real ahead of the movie. The other thing that's kind of remarkable about it is that I think we're so used to challenging movies dividing people that the mm-hmm. assumption was that like there were people who would like really be knives out hate this movie yeah i can't say i mean i heard like maybe one or two sort of naysayers but i can't say that it was really divisive it certainly hasn't been so far i think that it's a movie that demands your attention that it it takes about like an hour to really get the plot going but yeah. her performance is sort of the engine that keeps you with it it's so different from todd field's other movies like i was not prepared it has it's not like the guy who brought you little children made this movie. This is like a guy trying to make a Frederick Wiseman documentary that (laughs) happens to start Kate Blanchett as a, as a composer and the way her world gradually crumbles. It's like, you're fully in this movie in a way that I think is, you know, the payoff is so great, but so far, even people who might, you might assume have more conservative sensibilities seem to be on board with it. So, yeah. And I think, uh, roll with me here. Uh, cause this is kind of a new theory. I think that it is a film so conscious of what cinephiles are still talking about right now. That first hour has so many like jokes that uh, this particular crowd, this Telluride crowd particularly enjoyed. I think the only eye-rolly sort of element is that some of it is a little bit of like kids these days are not necessarily like an understanding of technology. We both were kind of trying yeah, to figure out what app someone was using. Yeah, this will be in the mystery of award season is that on a couple of occasions you see like a live video stream with texting on the uh, screen. And if anybody listening can explain to us what that is, it looked kind of like Periscope meets iMessage or something (laughs) and if he like invented his own form of like text messaging for this movie that's like some kind of like mind blow sci-fi shit but like it would be good to resolve that mystery and of course there's this amazing cancel culture component to it one prolonged scene where she kind of tries to put this Juilliard student in his place that goes really badly and so that's going to be a whole talking point 
with the movie. But uh, on some level, it is a showbiz film. And, you know, mm-hmm. Hollywood likes and the Academy likes movies about movies. It's in the movie about movie, although they say the character is an EGOT winner. So I guess she delved into that world. But it is kind of about the struggle of being a public artist yeah. and about something that a lot of people are worried about, which is, you know, the sensitivities of our current climate and so forth. So it's going to be fascinating to see how that one keeps evolving. It's not going to Toronto. So we'll have a little bit of a gap and then yeah. it'll suddenly erupt at New York Film Festival right before it opens. So it's going to be a bit before we see the next kind of wave of reactions to this movie. But Armageddon Time, since you noted it, I think we should touch on that because mm. we've both seen it, but that premiered at Cannes. It was not like a big winner there. It went over decently well. People like James Gray in, in France and so forth. But this was a real different kind of profile to reintroduce it into. So mm-hmm. you had time to talk to um, Kendall Roy because Jeremy Strong was basically Kendall Roy while he was at Sundance. And or I'm sorry, I tell you, Ryden was like everywhere wearing that hat and stuff. So like, what is your perception of the the kind of potential for this movie to continue because it's it's not like tar it's not like a big showy movie it's a very sort of intimate story i mean how does that you know sort of set it up for the the season ahead yeah first uh uh, apologies to jeremy strong i know it's uh if you read our interview it's a very interesting conversation about wanting to be a character actor but also coming to terms with knowing that you're going to be associated uh, with this one role. And I do think that with Armageddon time, it, it did seem like it slowed down a little bit after it can, but at Telluride, it, it seems like it got a fresh restart. It really was one of the films that people seem to enjoy. And uh, Jeremy Strong was really making the rounds and uh, talking to everyone. And uh, and his wife directed a documentary short too. So yeah, for real hideous, I want to say. Um, and him and and uh, James uh, James Gray, the writer director, uh, were also just like going to a lot of movies as a group. Uh, and so I think that there is a strong chance, especially for Jeremy and Anthony, uh, to be. Uh, a big part of the best supporting actor race um, and someone else we're going to talk about coming yep. up uh, yep. in a film you wouldn't think of to have yep. best supporting actor contender. Um, and so I think that was kind of special. And I do think we've seen a lot of films, her a lot of, about films this year being so tied to the filmmakers origins and very personal stories. And I feel that, from what I've seen so far, Armageddon Time is the most successful. Um, and I think in part it is because James's approach is warts and all, and even the criticism people have had of it, uh, the film really addresses in a way that I appreciate it. Yeah, and the other thing about it is is that there's just like a lot of goodwill for the people involved. Obviously, James Gray, like, he made Ad Astra and that I thought that was a really cool movie, but yeah. like, you know, it was like super ambitious, was sort of tossed aside by the studio here. He's doing something really personal and, and people sometimes really like to see that. I mean, that's essentially what happened with Belfast last year. It was a Kenneth Branagh, somebody who had a lot of respect going for him, made his personal story. Everyone wants to make their Roma. OK, we'll see what Fablemans is like at TIFF. And I'm looking forward to it, obviously. But some of these are better than others. Armageddon Time is a, is a really solid version of that. I also feel like the Jeremy Strong thing is kind of like when Brian Cranston 
became an Oscar nominee, you know, yeah. it's sort of like the TV persona actually ends up working in their favor because he's doing something so different, sort of the way that uh, Cranston did in Trumbo in a way. Uh, so then we have Women Talking. Yes. Women Talking, the other movie that unfortunately you had to wait all the way till the end of the weekend to see while listening to 5,000 people talk about it at parties. That yeah. movie is busy with performances. Uh, I think, uh, you know, I speak for both of us when I say it's, we really enjoyed it, um, mm. which is a surprising thing to say about a, a movie that, in which women are talking about their experiences getting raped by men. I mean, yeah. it's not on paper. It sounds like it's pretty hard, but it's actually uh, really involving and satisfying, sometimes quite funny. It gets beyond its theatrical roots in a, in a really great way. I think just in the, the way it kind of constantly builds and Sarah Polly's screenplay from the Miriam Tews book really consolidates all of these plots of, uh, you know, different women characters. It's like, there were like nine actresses, 10 actresses at Telluride and mm -hmm. they all get a good amount of screen time, which raises yeah. this really fascinating, challenging question, which is who's the lead of this movie? So have you figured it out? <laughs> so here's the thing. People have talked about the spotlight approach, entering all the actors into supporting, uh, which eliminates any sort of accusations of category fraud. But I do genuinely feel that it could take a similar approach as The Help, which put Viola Davis in lead actress. And she almost won. That was the year that uh, Meryl Streep took it for Iron Lady, which I don't think definitely mixed reviews on that one. Um, but mm -hmm. uh, when you see the film, there is a narration that goes throughout in uh, the subject of that narration is mostly Rudy Mara's character, Ona. Uh, and Rudy Mara does a very uh, great performance. It's very soulful. It's something different from what we've seen her. The only difference between, because I think the other two actresses people talk about are Claire Foy and Jesse Buckley as kind of locks uh, right. for an Oscar nomination, is that Claire Foy and Jesse Buckley are a lot louder and uh kind of go harder uh, with right. some they of the big talking points. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think Rooney is a representation for what the conversation of the film is really about, looking at it from every angle, whether it is forgiveness, uh, to fight back, uh, what does leaving mean? Um, and so I want all of them to win. And I, honestly, you could put, five actresses from this film to fill the best supporting actress. And I don't necessarily, it would never happen, but I don't think people would be the most angry at it because there really are um, just amazing uh, performances in this film. But yeah, I mean, uh, the it, other, it's the, the point of comparison that we keep bringing up is spotlight, obviously where only Mark yeah. Ruffalo got in, even though like Michael Keaton was kind of the centerpiece of that movie in a way. And then the movie won best picture, but none of those people. So it, it does feel like it's, it's sort of like, you got to choose something to strip away the competition there and, and get into some other categories, but it'll be fascinating to see how they go about doing that. Yeah. And by the way, the other uh, best supporting actor candidate we were going to mention is Ben Wishaw, who is really good yeah. in the film. He is the one guy who is taking minutes at the meeting that is He's literally the only guy in the movie. Yeah. Unless you count as, uh, the, the, the shot of, of some guy in a truck at one point from, through a mirror, which doesn't. Really yeah, happen. exactly. And uh, 
something different from him as well. It is just uh, he gets a lot of scenes to really uh, show off his acting capabilities. And uh, you go into it thinking like, well, what is a male role going to be in this film? Like, how is it going to work? And uh, they do a good job of showing you why. Yep. Yep. Well, speaking of what is a male and how they operate in a film that isn't necessarily in love with them, let's talk about Bardo, which is uh, a movie that is very much about kind of the conflicts of a sing- of, of one guy kind of at the center of like every scene of a movie. Uh, very different from women talking, obviously. In fact, it, it's more part of the trend we were talking about before with everyone making movies about filmmaking's personal stories. So Bardo got like eviscerated in Venice, just like torn apart. Look at all the reviews, including our own. Um, and uh, it's not surprising. I still think like if eight and a half came out today, people would kill it on Twitter in like two minutes because when filmmakers make very personal projects about themselves, they're very vulnerable. And mm. this one is, you know, the, the main actor Mexican actor looks very much like Inuritu, and I suppose on some level it does feel like a Vanny project. Yeah. I had a great time with this movie. It's wild and hilarious and unexpected in all kinds of ways, but I also think like it taps into this like paradox of being a Latin American where like you leave your country and you're proud of where you come from and then you go back and you hate it. And the essence of that at the core of the movie is so well explored. Like there's yeah. like a dream sequence where he gets into an argument with Cortez that turns out to be a film shoot. It's not like a huge spoiler. So don't get mad at me, but I yeah. really love that kind of playfulness. So I'm sort of shocked that the, there was such a brutal reaction to this movie. And I'll be curious with Netflix putting this out for seven weeks, how the lifespan of this movie continues. I had a conversation with Kate Blanchett in Telluride and she loved the movie. Actors mm. branch is the biggest branch in the Academy. Barry yeah. Jenkins loved the movie, moderated a talk with Inuritu at the festival. So there are like two sides to the story. And what was your sense of that on the ground? I saw the stuff out of Venice. And remember, we talked about me seeing the footage, me saying that I think it's going to be right. my favorite film in Inuritu's. The first half of that film is my favorite <laughs> film of Inuritu's. I think it is incredibly visually stunning very uh fun ups and downs uh and i do want to shout out that lead actor that's what i was like looking up daniel jimenez caucho does a fantastic job once again like kate blanchett carrying this three-hour film um but truly just like really uh, oh it's three hours i can't like oh it's so indulgent like when you watch it it's giving you so much interesting things to look at. I do not know why in a time where we don't have a lot of movies out right now and the movies that do get made, we talk about not being interesting enough to start complaining about Bardo, which is giving us so much to talk about and think about. Uh, It did feel really dismissive. And I do think some of what he said uh, or what he's saying about um, not being given the benefit of the doubt and people not really picking up on this uh, immigrant story is true. And yeah, I, I think filmmakers will really uh, love this. I think everyone who sees it and didn't work on it would feel like, oh, I would have loved to have worked on that and been on set and right. see how they got this done. And so, yeah, I think it was a little crazy. And I think we're going to see 
in the coming weeks, as more people see the film, there's going to be like a second wave of more positive reactions to it. Um, and I'm excited to see that. I'm not going to say I thought it was like a perfect film. I did find the second half a little bit slower and like not to my specific taste. But you're like, stop complaining. It's so long, but it's really long. Yeah, I mean, it is long. And and I had to see it on Friday yeah. immediately after women talking. Like Netflix literally (laughs) like stuck me in a shuttle and drove me over from the Palm to the Herzog theater. And it was like five hours of movies that don't make it easy on you. You know, one being like very dialogue driven, the other being this like daring dream, like assemblage of stuff. But, uh, but it kind of woke me up. Honestly, I was a little nervous about it, but there's just like a lot of ingenuity there. And I revel in some of the flaws, I think on some level with that kind of filmmaking, but I like that you point out that, you know, this is like a hard time for the movies. And when people take real creative gambles, that's something that's that should be celebrated. And that's probably the best thing this movie has going for it as its profile, you know, continues to expand. Let's talk about Empire of Light, because that's another movie that in some ways feels sort of timely in in this conversation, because it's it's an 80s set romance about, you know, a movie theater that's like by the sea but it's also you know in some ways kind of tapping into the magic of seeing movies on the big screen and and so forth so in that sense it's sort of celebrating something that a lot of people are afraid is dying off so i thought the movie was fine um (laughs) you know it's i i wouldn't say like it's you know it was like my favorite thing i saw over the weekend i there were some people who really didn't like it and then other people who thought it was very pleasant i kind of fall in, in more more or less into the latter camp uh i found that Olivia Coleman, of course, like could, you know, she like could tie her shoes and, and be an Oscar nominee. And she goes beyond that kind of bare minimum with this role of a woman who works at the concession stands with a mental illness and falls in love with this younger guy. Yeah. You were totally right, though, tipping Michael Ward as this like breakout performer. So tell us a little bit about that and kind of what potential you see for this movie in the weeks ahead. Yeah, I think the only unfortunate thing with Michael Ward, who was really great in the film, uh, is that uh, if he were to campaign as best actor, it would be too difficult to break into that category. There's just um, a lot of people uh, like even Colin Farrell for Banshees that uh, have never been nominated and Uh, I think the Academy would be much more willing to say this is their time. Uh, My thing about Empire Light, uh, I told you it is for the people who still clap at Nicole Kidman's AMC commercial. Uh, (laughs) I consider myself kind of one of those people. I still very much get a kick out of uh, something heartbreaking in a place like this. (laughs) It's like like the extended universe, the expanded universe of the Nicole Kidman commercial in a way, even visually. Yeah, exactly. And also talking about Best Supporting Actor, I'm very big on Toby Jones, who does give us like completely one of those scenes of like, this is the magic of cinema. The interesting part of Empire of Light is that Sam Mendes wrote it himself, said it's his most personal story. You can see parts of that. But ultimately, the main characters are Olivia Coleman and Michael Ward. And the further away those characters go from what we can perceive as Sam Mendes' experience, because there are some clear ways uh, he hasn't experienced what those characters experience. I yeah. think that is the real knock on the film, because there are some parts that are like, uh, well, this is not what I wanted uh, 
And well, the point, I mean, there is a, a parallel with Armageddon time in the sense that you have two white directors of somewhat similar generations dealing with racial conflict in the 80s. Uh, they have similar reference points. I mean, they talk about expanded universes. I mean, like you, yeah. you, you feel like you're like going into the memory banks of these men as they age and they try to make sense of what they went through. And that's, you know, dicey territory that obviously Mendes tries to deal with in a very sensitive way. But it's it's not really, you know, Michael Ward's perspective is not really what drives a movie. Right. So that is that's a tricky thing when you're de- especially when you're dealing with fictional characters. I mean, in the case of Armageddon Time, you know, it's not really the movie's issue in the same way because it's James Gray's story. He's he's, right. sort of like, he's the entry point. But here it's like, well, Sam Mendes and Olivia Coleman's, you know, older, mentally ill woman are so far removed. So he's like several degrees removed from the racial conflict of the of the story. And so you do kind of feel that to some degree. And that that is sort of a knock against it and maybe an issue, I suppose, for original screenplay when we get into the award side of it, too. By the way, some of this, like we are kind of pointing it out as a criticism, but I don't think it'll ultimately matter with how the Academy perceives it. I think a yeah. lot of voters will really love this film. Uh, there are just- a great Ann Thompson always points out it's not critics who vote for the Oscars. Exactly. And we may not be operating in that capacity right now, but it's very easy to get sort of like into your own head about what's good and what's not good and so forth. And, you know, the, the Belfast example is fascinating because licorice pizza really seemed like it had that momentum going for it for best original for a while hmm. but people love Bel- belfast was a telluride world premiere like this one and yeah. it just turned along in a very specific kind of way sam mendes is going to get an award from the from tiff next yeah. week at their tribute gala and and so no you're right i'm glad you're here to to, to keep our heads straight because <laughs> you know it very much could be a screenplay contender that's possible director i don't know yeah. Um, certainly the cinematography, Roger Deakins, you know, he's like the John Williams of, of cinematography. Like he just does stuff and tends to get nominated. I mean, so. speaking of John Williams, Atticus Ross and Trent Reznor, every time there was a scene about the magic of cinema, they completely matched it with the perfect score that made you feel like, oh, we are watching a movie right now. Right. Uh, and also shout out to production design. The theater that most of the film takes place in, not only do, is it an amazing sort of uh, theater house but there are parts of it that are abandoned again not really a big spoiler that even look like a place that you would really want to explore and so there yeah, is totally. like some really interesting stuff in the film all right quickly so speaking of uh celebrations of cinema and filmmakers let's talk a bit about senior the robert downey senior documentary so i really loved it for a few reasons one is that uh, you know, Chris Smith is a great filmmaker. He did that fire documentary on Netflix, but is probably best known for American movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, the way he shot this in black and white and captured kind of the dynamic between junior and senior is is really involving. But also, like, I, I love Robert Downey Sr.'s movies. I mean, um, Grease's Palace is is, um, is remarkable, but um, Putney Swope was like huge for me. Um, yeah. And watch, watching this movie in that context kind of brought back these memories. And also I realized how few people know these films. It's a great entry point to his career as a filmmaker and that it personalizes it through the lens of Robert Downey Jr., who, of course, everybody knows. So what was that like for you when you finally got a chance to see it? Yeah, I'll preface this by saying that I was uh, freaking out that the senior was at 5.30 and I had to get over to go see women talking at 7.15. And so- (laughs) That's a festival experience, man. 
I had a fire under my ass watching Senior, but it turned out to be probably my favorite film of the festival. Uh, it was actually like, I almost took it personal and some people, uh, I heard comment it, it being like self-indulgent or something like that. And of course, comments about like Robert Downey Jr. being a showboat, but it really, in addition to, I mean, the whole reason why it happened was uh, the director wanted to make a film about Robert Downey, Robert Downey Jr. He said, no, make a document documentary about my dad. Um, it's so great. It is one of those great portraits of an artist, but what it turns into, uh, this father son story, this generational story just really, uh, touched me. Um, and I definitely cried watching it. And I thought like, uh, this is such a unique film that, uh, of course, he has the rare uh, capability of being able to make it. Not everyone can sort of bring a camera to their final days with their parents, but uh, it it, I, it was very touching and I think it was impressive and I haven't seen another documentary like it. And so hoping for that yeah. distribution. Uh, yeah, I would think a movie like this could could come out this year and, and even get shortlisted and nominated to someone who's fast enough, but it is a very competitive field and just quickly because i know you didn't get a chance to see this but uh laura poitras's film all the beauty and the bloodshed snuck into a morning tva slot on the last day of the festival after venice i wish it had uh more exposure at the festival because it you know it's always nice to kind of be in rarefied company in that sense but this movie is, is so good um it feels like the definite front runner it's about nan golden who obviously was a great photographer but it's also about how she overcame her addiction to oxycontin and then went after uh the sackler family and, and purdue pharma with all these amazing die-ins at major museums like the first scene of the movie they do a die-in at the temple of dender and it's so well done obviously she's a producer and, co and coordinated with laura poitras so like she got all this amazing footage you feel yeah. like with season four was like a real-time thriller and this is like this like amazing kind of like act up type of survival story where this woman yeah. overcomes like a dark period of her life and and you know finds you know a new chapter in social change it's just so well done so yeah. i hope you get a chance to see it and i know there's not much more to say about that but man it's going to be a busy uh season for documentaries i mean obviously fire of love just crossed a million at the box office which in these days is a lot so yeah. I guess we'll see how that goes. And uh, and tomorrow, as we're recording this on Wednesday, I'm going to Toronto and um, you are going to stick around in Los Angeles because you've got Emmys to deal with. So I, I think it'd be helpful to just kind of like peel back the veil right quick. What's it like to be sort of coming out of a really intense award season festival and then go right back into like the last days of the Emmy season? Yeah, I mean, voting ended a while ago. And so... Uh, there weren't too many changes prediction wise. Um, I feel pretty good with some of my ideas. I don't know if my hot take that Sarah Polson is going to win limited uh, series actress is still going to happen. Um, but yeah, I've got a weekend full of events ahead of me. And then after the ceremony happens, a couple stories uh, to write about, but I'm really just excited to see what the, results are because i think that there could be some really interesting um emmys given out uh i mean 
I got to see uh, how Abbott Elementary does. I think that was such a success story. Um, Great show. But- you got you got me into that show. <laughs> really excited to see how that how that takes off. Yeah, and I think that uh, Quinta Brunson is almost definitely going to win uh, writing for a comedy. Uh, and I think uh, some of that stuff, like I think uh, for Barry, um, Bill Hader is probably going to win for directing. Uh, I think Ted Lasso is going to win a bunch of awards. I think the white Lotus is going to win a a bunch of awards, Uh, but Michael Keaton is going to get his first Emmy for dope sick Uh, and drama succession. Drama is going to be a lot of splits. I think succession is probably going to win best drama. Uh, But not Jeremy Strong, who now has to focus on his Oscar campaign, right? Exactly. I think Squid Games kind of got that one on lock. Um, Must be so weird to be campaigning for it. You know, it's like he's ramping down one and then ramping up the other. And he's got to be Kendall Roy at the same time. Like the existential conflict of all of that is something that very few people in human history can understand. (laughs) Yeah. And I promise you, anytime you talk to him about acting, it's a very interesting conversation. He has really developed his own approach. And so he's probably not going to win. Uh, the Emmy this year, but I think there's more awards to come for uh, Jeremy Strong. And by the way, I did want to hit on Venice real quick uh, yeah. to say that Bansi- Banshees of Inishirin deserves as much as applause as they want to give it. Uh, yeah. And even if even if we're not timing the ovations, that one is definitely a, a crowd pleaser. Yeah, that's a good point. So as we go into Toronto, there will be more of these sort of Venice uh, hits making their way over there. Banshees is one of them that didn't go to Telluride. I, I had heard it was because Martin McDonough was a little burned that uh, three billboards didn't play there. And it's too bad because it is super fun. It's classic yeah. Madonna, really bitter, dark comedy in a way, but it's got a bit of a like almost optimistic element to it with time it's warmer than than some of his films are um and so this weekend we're gonna see a bunch of other stuff i'll have to keep you apprised when we see fablemans when we see glass onion finally catching up on the whale and and a bunch of other stuff um so try to keep your head straight on saturday if anyone who's listening is coming to tiff i should say a note that this podcast is going to do a live recording with some of the other folks from the IndieWire team uh, at 4 p.m. at Glenn Gould Hall. So if you're a TIFF person with a badge, come by and you can heckle us, ask questions or whatever. And if you actually have a question for Marcus, we can try to like FaceTime him or something. But good luck. (laughs) Try to stay sane and sober in the next few days. And um, when we get to the other side, we can unpack where we're at. But uh, Mm -hmm. Godspeed, Marcus. We managed to be the only ones to not talk about Don't Worry, Darling. So, shout <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Do we have to? Okay, they didn't spit. He didn't spit. We know he didn't spit on, on him, but other than that, what is there to say? We're I have a on. quick line because also this gets into Telluride. Okay. I think The Wonder shows how great of an actor Florence Pugh is. It's a great film. I suggest people saying it. It'll be easy. It's on Netflix. Don't worry, darling, shows you at least that Florence Pugh is a movie star. That is the best thing you can say about it. Uh, and we can leave it at that. Fair enough. Well, people are going to go see it. So <laughs> that too. So more to come. But uh, More to come. More to come on the, on, on the Pugh train. God, exactly. But it was great talking to you uh, again to you as well. Have a great time at Toronto. Um, 
and yeah, everyone come see that talk and then uh, check out our feelings about Emmys on Monday. That's right. And your prediction pages. We got a bunch of those that have just been updated. All right, Marcus, good luck. See you soon. All right. See you later. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.